Hey there, welcome to Fleet FYIs, the weekly podcast by Utilimark that reveals how you can make the most of your data for Sperner fleet management. My name is Gretchen, and every week you'll hear from me and some of the industry's finest in candid conversations that will shed some light on not only two decades worth of data insights, but some of the industry's hottest talking points and key metric analysis with the aim to help you better understand your fleet from every angle. But before we begin, if this is the first time you've heard our show, thanks for stopping by. I'm so glad you decided to come along for the ride with us. But I've got a quick favor to ask you. Once you've finished today's episode, if you could take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform, we would really appreciate it. Give us a rating, five stars I hope, or tell us what you liked or leave us a comment or a question about what you've heard in today's episode. But if we haven't yet covered a topic that you're interested in hearing more about, let us know. We would be happy to go over it in detail in a later episode. If that sounds good to you, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Fleet FYI's podcast. How are you all doing today? Good, I hope. We are all wrapped up and cozy here in the Midwest because in Minnesota, the weather has begun to take its turn for the cold and freezing temperatures. I swear, it went from like 80 degrees one day to 40 degrees the next, and that's not an exaggeration. I almost wish it was, but being a landlocked state, it tends to happen that we get some pretty extreme temperature swings, especially in the beginning of, I'd almost call it winter now, not even autumn. But in a way, the topic of this episode is somewhat related to weather. Somewhat. And we all know that makes my Midwestern heart sing because we love to talk about the weather. For those of you that are frequent listeners of this show, you certainly already know that. (laughs) But the topic in question today is greenhouse gases. We've all heard about greenhouse gases, right? At least, I think we all have. Recently, it's gone from just a conversation to a relatively controversial topic, and I don't say that lightly. And it's especially done so as it's come to light in recent years that, according to climate scientists, we need to severely reduce carbon emissions and greenhouse gas outputs to ensure a safe environment for future generations to come. The question that many people have, folks like you and me or even international organizations, is why should we care? Why should we care about greenhouse gases? What are they? Haven't they always been there? Aren't they good for the planet, so to say, so on and so forth? It's human nature to always look for the why when someone tells you that something must be done, especially if it's for the quote-unquote good of society. It's because we're naturally curious. But I digress. We're on the topic of greenhouse gases today, not human curiosity. We're talking about what they are, why they're impactful, and why they're an important aspect of the sustainability movement. So if you're ready, let's dig in. So let's begin with the basics. What are greenhouse gases? Really? Well, greenhouse gas emissions have been one of the hottest topics surrounding sustainability in the past few decades. But the truth is, they've been drastically on the rise since the Industrial Revolution in the late 1800s. I'm not sure if you knew that, but it's kind of common sense. You know, with the introduction of coal-powered machinery and, you know, just our reliance on fossil fuels, they were bound to increase. So there you go. Industrial Revolution, kind of the ignition point for that. 
excuse the bad driving pun, (laughs) government policies and corporate responsibility initiatives often mention cutting down on these greenhouse gases. But I think what a lot of people want to know is what exactly are they? Because tossing this greenhouse gas term out there without actually delving into what they are, what types of gases make up greenhouse gases, what their role, what their purpose is, and why potentially too many of them can be bad, it makes this whole conversation a little foggy and sometimes a little bit too emotionally charged if, you know, you're not exactly sure where you should stand. Well, for starters, greenhouse gases, just first and foremost, they absorb heat and they trap heat in the atmosphere which keeps the Earth at habitable temperatures for humans and other species to live. I mean, without them, we would die. The world would be at zero degrees, um, and that would basically mean that you couldn't farm for crops, you couldn't grow food, you couldn't raise animals, and we wouldn't be able to live. It would just be too cold. However, with greenhouse gases at an all-time high, especially due to human activity, like I said, kicked off in the Industrial Revolution, this phenomenon of atmospheric warming leads to out-of-control temperatures and extreme weather conditions that can potentially threaten life all across the planet. I mean, we've heard of these extreme storms, tornadoes, tsunamis, etc., etc. But the thing is, is that not all greenhouse gases are equal. They're created in different ways from separate processes, and they come from many different industries. So the blame can't all be placed on one particular piece of the industry like transportation or fast fashion or raising cattle, you know, whatever it is that a lot of people are talking about that are the biggest greenhouse gas polluters. I mean, sure, they may be a major player, but we can't just rest all the blame on one place. But in the spirit of shedding light on greenhouse gases and what exactly they are. Like I said, they're not all created equal. Let's talk about what the different types of greenhouse gases are. There's four main types of greenhouse gases. You have carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and fluorinated gases. Now, these gas emissions come from all types of human activities, like I mentioned. Um, Just a few industries off the top of my head are electricity generation, transportation, agriculture, Um, You have the fashion industry and, of course, you know, many other types of mining or what have you, many industries that operate all over the world. We've come, and I say we as a collective whole, not just here at Utilimark, to realize that there's a pattern when it comes to high population or high performing industries and then the correlation between those and high greenhouse gas outputs. Um, I mean, this is probably common sense, but countries with more activity in these sectors are greater contributors to greenhouse gases and just their overall levels, with China, the United States, and the collective European Union being the largest emitters overall. I mean, it makes sense, right? But like I said before, areas with high amounts of industry performance, high population, and potentially high amounts of haulage and shipping, there's your top three right there. U.S., China, European Union. But I wanted to dig in a bit to the different types of greenhouse gases just to really try and help people understand exactly where these different gas emissions are coming from. So first up, we have carbon dioxide. And we've all heard of this one by now, I'm sure. But carbon dioxide, you might see it represented as CO2, is the most prevalent greenhouse gas in our atmosphere today, making up about 80% roughly of emissions that are put out in the U.S. And it's produced through both natural and unnatural processes and is pretty harmless in small quantities. 
CO2 is actually essential for life on Earth, and without it, plants can't go through photosynthesis, so trees wouldn't be able to take in CO2 and therefore create the oxygen that we breathe, so CO2 is essential. However, it's the most dangerous greenhouse gas in large amounts, making its current record levels in our atmosphere kind of a major concern. So you see where I'm going with this one. The excessive amount of CO2 comes mostly from the burning of fossil fuels for energy production. Think coal and petroleum. Um, And the thing is, is that CO2 also has a long lifespan, and it lingers in the atmosphere for centuries that can potentially make it an even greater threat. Now, next up, we have methane, or methane, as you might have heard it called. And you may or may not have known this, but agricultural activities are actually the largest source of global methane, or CH4, emissions. Animals, specifically cattle, their natural digestive processes and the decomposition of livestock manure, are some of the activities that emit methane in great amounts. Other contributors include the production and distribution of coal and natural gas, as well as waste management and decay in landfills. If you see the tubes coming up in landfills, those are actually vents so that it's you don't have too much heat, which could potentially cause an explosion. But methane emissions in the U.S. have dropped about 19%, which is good, between 1990 and 2019, with the primary source shifting away from landmills and coal mining more towards agricultural um, industries, specifically the farming of cattle. Still, one thing to note is that methane is the second most prevalent greenhouse gas following carbon dioxide, but despite its shorter lifespan of only about 12 years, Methane actually has a greater ability to trap heat than carbon dioxide, making it a pretty serious global warming concern, as you'll probably see if you look at any documentaries or any studies done by climate scientists, they'll tell you this. It makes it a serious global warming concern nonetheless. Third up on the list, we've got nitrous oxide. Now, nitrous oxide, which can also be represented as N2O, is present in the atmosphere due to, again, both natural and human activities. It has a pretty long lifespan, sitting at about the 114-115 year mark, and whilst it only accounts for about 7% of greenhouse gas emissions, it has nearly 300 times the impact of carbon dioxide on global warming which is kind of a big number. It sounds a little scary, but it's typically emitted from agricultural activities, transportation, and overall industry processes with agricultural soil management accounting for the majority of N2O emissions in the U.S. Now, nitrous oxide also occurs naturally in the environment due to the circulation and breaking down of nitrogen from plants, animals, microorganisms. So it does occur naturally. It's not just something that humans are putting out into the atmosphere completely um, without the aid of the environment in its natural state. But last but not least, and this is one that I think you'll be really interested to hear about, and that is fluorinated gases. And this one I think is a bit of a heavy hitter. So Unlike other greenhouse gases, fluorinated gases, otherwise you might see them called F gases, don't occur naturally. Now that's the biggest thing. They do not occur naturally and they are only emitted into the atmosphere through human activity. They're a family of man-made gases that are typically used to substitute ozone-depleting substances like refrigerants, as well as in certain industrial processes like aluminum manufacturing or aluminium, um, whichever way you say it. 
But though F gases don't strip away the Earth's ozone, it is a very powerful greenhouse gas with potentially devastating properties. These gases can stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years and are up to 23,000 times more impactful in global warming than carbon dioxide. So even in very small quantities, F gases have disproportionate effects on the environment, which isn't good. But before this becomes too doom and gloom, (laughs) just because the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere currently is quite high, it doesn't mean that there isn't anything that we can do about it. And that's one thing that we're starting to see a major shift for. So since this is the Fleet FYI's podcast, why don't we talk a little bit about fleets as part of our as part of our segment strategy for this episode? And a big question that you have a lot of people asking are why are fleets making the reduction of greenhouse gases a core part of their sustainability strategies? Well, I hope I've answered that question at least somewhat in um, the prior section of the episode, just in going over in detail, you know, what the greenhouse gases that are currently, or at least the four main ones that, you know, organizations and industries all over the world are emitting. But the thing is, is that fleet sustainability has been on the minds of many. So this is not, this is not a new topic. It's not a new movement, especially in the last few years, but It's become a main focus, especially because we are currently in a social climate with so much messaging surrounding climate crises and a ton of clients and customers, especially for the organizations with fleets, the people that they serve, they're demanding action before supporting organizations more than ever before. They're really putting their money where their mouth is. And many people tend to look at fleets as one of the largest polluting contributors of modern organizations. And in a way, it makes sense. Transportation makes up for, I believe, the largest emitter of pollutants on an international scale for any organization. Now that's taking in um, hauling, shipping, transportation of pieces of equipment, really anything that you can think of with a vehicle, that all is included into that category. But there has been a renewed movement and a focus on emissions reduction. Now, this is all over the world. It's not just in the U.S. And it's gaining pretty significant traction in the corporate sectors of organizations everywhere. In the U.S. to date, hundreds of companies have actually made plans to significantly cut back on their greenhouse gas emissions to what we call a net zero strategy through a variety of carbon reduction technologies. And actually, in the U.S. alone, nearly, and I think the number's up to about 1,400 right now, um, 1,400 companies have committed to cut their net carbon dioxide emissions to zero over the carbon over, over the coming decades. Wow, that the, the end of that sentence was kind of hard to get out there. But this is actually a process called carbon offsetting, which means this is where emissions are removed from the atmosphere, and it's central to many of these sustainability plans that organizations are coming out with. So if you think about it in this way, it's the utilization of hydrogen fuel, which is made from taking carbon emissions out of the air, pulling hydrogen out of water to create a biodiesel, biokerosene, biopetrol. Um, we have a couple of articles over on Utilimark's site, um, utilimark.com, so U-T-I-L-I-M-A-R-C.com. And if you go to our blog section, you'll be able to learn about hydrogen fuel cell technology and hydrogen fuel in general. But my point is, 
is that with the utilization of hydrogen fuel or engaging in green or environmental cleanup activities, organizations are able to more so offset their carbon emissions, pulling as many emissions out as they're putting into the environment. Therefore, you get that carbon neutrality status. And like we said, carbon dioxide, which is emitted naturally and by the burning of fossil fuels, it'll stay in the atmosphere for a long time. And that's actually the main target of a lot of these sustainability strategies. You know, we all know this by now, especially since, you know, I hope you were paying attention in the last section of this episode since we just went over it. But the main reason that climate scientists and organizations with fleets are so concerned about carbon dioxide is because the more carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere, the hotter the Earth will become and it changes the, cli- the Earth's climate. And this could be devastating for our environment. We've already covered that. And fleets, as well as the customers they serve, know it. So that is, in my humble opinion, I should say, one of the biggest reasons why fleets are actually making the reduction of carbon dioxide emissions central to their sustainability strategies. And actually, one thing I thought was kind of cool, and this is a little tidbit that um, it stood out to me in my last uh, in my last trip. Um, for those of you that didn't know, I actually just got back from a short trip to London not too long ago. And I think I've probably told at least 20 people this by now, um, at least all of um, my friends and colleagues that are very involved in the sustainability movement. And it's one thing I've been super impressed with just overall since the creation of this service, but especially more so when I saw this statistic a couple weeks ago, was if you've ever been to London, there is a train that runs from the Heathrow Airport to Paddington Station, which is in the west side of London, still central, but west side of London. And it's called the Heathrow Express. Now, the Heathrow Express is an electric train, and it runs partially underground um, and also partially overground. But the cool piece about this is that the Heathrow Express, and I think I'm getting this right, the total amount of carbon emissions that the Heathrow Express releases into the environment per round trip, I believe, is less than running one cycle of washing in your washing machine. So, you know, the washing machine you'd put your clothes into after a day of wearing them. It emits less carbon than one cycle of your washing machine. I thought that was pretty cool. Just a little tidbit. But, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of industries and there's a lot of countries that are really making a lot of strides towards this carbon neutrality or net neutrality goal. And, you know, sometimes some organizations, they say they're going to be carbon neutral, but sometimes they end up being carbon negative, which means they're pulling out more than they're putting in, which is also a fantastic way to put a good foot forward, you know, in this whole movement towards better sustainability for you know, organizations in your own backyard as well as across the world. So one thing I wanted to touch on before I wrap up this episode is understanding how exactly we can reach net zero emissions, because that statement in itself, I think, sounds a little bit daunting, and it does so for good reason, because it seems like a pretty big goal without a lot of concrete planning um, to get to that point. But in order to reach the climate goals set by the Paris Agreement, countries will quickly need to figure out how they can reach net zero or even what's called net negative emissions. And like I said earlier, this is a point at which more greenhouse gas emissions are being removed from the atmosphere and stored rather than being emitted into the atmosphere. 
And with fossil fuel consumption being pretty much, I guess you could say, the greatest culprit for CO2 emissions, reducing any related activities is key. So this could be increasing renewable energy generation. It could mean electric vehicle usage and adoption. Those two are actually probably going to be prime targets for reducing CO2 going forward. But for other greenhouse gases, this will actually require strategic rethinking of many activities that are still contributing heavily to gas emissions. And in many cases, simply upgrading technology or equipment used in different industrial processes can make a huge difference because as technology grows a little bit older, we're able to make more improvements both on the sustainability and also, you know, just on the side of making it more I guess productive is the best way to put it. More productive, more sustainable as technology evolves, that tends to happen. Now, there's also many natural and technological approaches to removing and storing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. I should touch on that before I wrap this show up. And the biological processes or the natural processes like photosynthesis, like I touched on earlier, it allows for CO2 to be absorbed from the air and stored in trees and plants. And similarly, CO2 can also be stored underground in soil or rocks or reservoirs. But if you ever hear of organizations saying, we're planting trees for every flight we send um, a representative on, or for every 100 miles we drive, we're planting a tree. That's why, that's why they're doing it. It's because they want to be able to offset their carbon emissions as well as they can. Um, and, you know, that's only a single part of it. And the thing is, is that policies need to be put in place to deter corporations and consumers from furthering the problem, I think. I mean, we all know this by now, right? There's already countless regulations regarding emissions in the sectors of agriculture, transportation, and industry, but it's likely we'll see even more in the upcoming decades, or even the upcoming months and years. I mean, again, going back to um, London itself, as a very, very electric city, they've actually just expanded their ULEZ, and if you don't know what that acronym means, it means ultra low emission zone, and it stretches for most of the city from Heathrow in the west all the way through to past Canary Wharf in the east, which, if you know, London is quite a large distance. It goes up to zone four in the north and down to zone three in the south. So it's a pretty wide zone for low emissions vehicles, and they've actually implemented, um, they had this prior too, but they've in- implemented more of an area that involves needing to either pay a fine of driving a higher emissions vehicle through the zone rather than something that might be hybrid or electric. And basically, the idea is, is they're trying to push people to go towards that electrification route or the hybridization route, which is something that we talked about being um, one of the largest tactics for a more sustainable strategy. That's kind of coming to life in that sense. But I'd love to know, what do you think about greenhouse gases? Is implementing policy and strategy changes due to their effects part of your role? Does it affect you in any way? Does it affect your organization or your job? I'd love to hear what you think. Send me an email, tag me on LinkedIn, or use the hashtag UtilimarkFleetFYIs. As always, I'm looking forward to reading what you have to say, and I'm so curious to learn about the different attitudes surrounding greenhouse gases and how fleets are trying to work around them or actually just reduce the total amount of emissions that overall organizations are responsible for. 
But until next week, that's all from me. I will be back on Monday with a new episode of the Fleet FYI's Shorts. And if you haven't yet listened to those, we've had a couple episodes of Fleet FYI's Shorts go out already. Basically, in a nutshell, they are a bite-sized episode of Fleet FYI's content for you to enjoy in the beginning of the week rather than just waiting for me to put out an episode on Thursday, which I hope you all are looking forward to. So we are answering short little questions in roughly about 10 minutes or less. And if you do have any questions that you'd like for me to answer on that show, again, you can tag me on LinkedIn or you can even use the hashtag AskUtilamark because you never know, a question of yours might make it into a later episode. So I hope you're looking forward to it because I sure am. So until next week, that's all from me. Ciao. Hey there, I think this is the time that I should cue the virtual high five because you've just finished listening to another episode of the Fleet FYI's podcast. If you're already wanting more content, head over to utilimark.com, which is utilimark with a C, U-T-I-L-I-M-A-R-C.com for the show notes and extra insights coming straight from our analysts to you. That's all from me this week. So until next time, I'll catch you later.